We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. Today, we are speaking with Nicholas Stavros. He is the owner of um, Community Medical Services. They are primarily an OTP uh, and an MET provider. And I know that's someone that we haven't had on the show before, specifically running, uh, especially an OTP-style clinic. So I'm excited to bring that level of analysis. He's a very data-oriented guy, and he will talk through both the business model as well as uh, behavioral health components and the importance of having OTPs within the communities to serve um, different demographics and provide a method of very effective treatment. Before we do that, I want to obviously mention our sponsors. We have the fantastic Stone Ridge Partners sponsoring this podcast. Stone Ridge Partners is a boutique M&A advisory firm that exclusively works with home health, hospice, and behavioral health companies. Stone Ridge was founded 20 years ago and closes the most deals in the lower middle market in this space. Please reach out to us via our website or jacob at stoneridgepartners.com if we can be a resource to your treatment center. We'd love to help you in any way we can. Thanks. Stone Ridge Partners is great. You've got Jacob and Tony on the behavioral health team, uh, specifically focused on addiction treatment. I definitely recommend that you reach out to them um, if you guys are looking for any kind of sales or to buy and purchase additional treatment centers and fuel growth. So we're speaking with Nicholas Stavros. He definitely knows a lot about this space, and they are building 10 centers just this year. Uh, you know, they started as a small company. Uh, it's a family-owned business. They got some capital investment and have been expanding quickly. And as he'll mention, they could actually expand much faster if they were able to get around some of the um, community pushback that we all face when we're trying to grow um, treatment and provide options within communities, especially anywhere near um, residential areas tends to be a challenge, as we all know. So I'm excited to have him on. He is brilliant. He knows a lot. And I am excited to have him share his insights in the field with you. So let's jump in. Hey, Nick, really appreciate you taking the time to join us here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your company? Yeah, uh, my name is Nick Stavros, and uh, I'm the CEO for Community Medical Services. And we're, um, we are opioid treatment programs. Um, we're located in nine states. We have 32 um, opioid treatment programs in those states. And um, company's been around since 1983. I'm a bit newer to the company. I've been here about um, six years. And um, we're kind of uh, kind of uh, in a growth mode right now. We partnered with um, private equity investments uh, back in April of last year, and um, we are you know we've we've kind of found our calling um, to uh, to expand access to treatment for those suffering from opioid use disorder throughout the country. And obviously, uh, there's you know there's a huge number of people that are not getting treatment that need it. And so um, we're we're doing the best we can to to really um, to really expand access to those uh, underserved populations. So that's obviously a huge endeavor. That's kind of why we partnered also with with private equity um, funding, just so we could have the capital to um, to grow as quickly as we wanted to. Okay, so let's look at that a little bit first. You know, so you made this decision to partner with private equity. Um, can, can you walk through some of the factors that you were considering um, in that decision making process? 
Sure. Yeah, this was actually, so it was a family owned business. Um, and uh, my dad actually started in 1983. He was a physician and he's, he had been out of the business for probably 15 years prior um, to me coming on and it was kind of run by a management team. And, and um, the ownership uh, at the time was interested in retiring. And so they were, um, they just wanted to kind of, you know, sell the company and move on and retire. Um, and I came on to help prep for a sale. That's it. I didn't, uh, I was in the army for eight years prior to this. And so um, was really just coming on to help prep for the sale. And, uh, and as soon as I got here, it, you know, I, I became really passionate about the cause. And I think it's a lot of people that work in this field understand that it's, it's really easy to get passionate about this cause at this point in time, because, you know, there's such a need and um, so many people suffering from this epidemic. And so, you know, we were looking at uh, selling selling the company. It was only six clinics at the time. It was a small company. Um, we were looking at selling the, the company to like a strategic buyer um, and just having everybody retire. And uh, and I thought, you know, this this is something that I could make a career out of. And I, I just really fell in love with the, the, the mission and everything. And so I um, thought, you know, I'm I'm going to look for, um, you know, a capital partner that that really aligns with our values. That's, you know, that's willing to put the patient needs um, first before profits. And so, you know, we went through a formal process, hired an investment banker, um, you know, sent out um, books. I think we sent out like 75 books, and we ended up getting about 20 um, indications of interest. And then. Um, I think I did like 10 management presentations and we ended up um, partnering with Clearview Capital, um, who who we really felt was the most in line with our our vision. And so um, partnered with them and then uh, and, you know, they're growth growth minded as well. And so um, we were able to grow a ton. We went from six clinics, like I said, to uh, to 32. That was over like the last five years. And then we'll be at about 40 by the end of this year. And um it's been really cool. The whole process has been super cool. We've done a few acquisitions. We've acquired um, 11, 11 clinics um, in the last year, and uh, and we're just trying to, you know, um, trying to expand our, our foothold and and kind of grow our uh, reach into new states. So I'm kind of curious when you came to Clearview with your plan, you know, did you have a certain percentage of acquisitions versus de novo builds that you were looking at or, you know, what was kind of the strategy going into the, you know, the influx of capital? Yeah. I mean, a lot of, so, so a lot of times when, with the influx of capital, no, it's not like they said, we want to see your five-year strategy and we're going to invest in whichever company has the best five-year strategy. That's not really how it worked. It was more, they invest in, you know, in a management team that they think can can show growth. And so the strategy part of that comes later. And so, you know, our if, if I had to say there was there was a strategy thesis that we had, it's not to do what a lot of companies are doing, which is to go just gobble up as many um, of the fragmented market, as much of the fragmented market as we can, because the market's incredibly fragmented. That's why you see a lot of private equity investment in this space, because um, it's an opportunity to really pull companies together, package them up and sell them to the next buyer. And our thesis is, is definitely not that. It is more, we want to expand access to care. So that means opening new clinics. And so our thesis is more based on doing a few acquisitions here and there to get footholds, and then growing from there. So we get, you know, do an acquisition to get in a new state and then grow in that state. That's 
that's more of our thesis. And I'll, yeah, and I'll tell you the, the one thing I didn't know about partnering with private equity until after the fact was they have access to a lot of acquisitions that I otherwise would not have had. You know, I've been looking with our investment banker at doing acquisitions over the last couple of years and haven't really been able to find much. But when you partner with somebody like Clearview, they have investment bankers or broker, business brokers or whatever, calling them all the time saying, I got this business for sale. And so they're bringing me stuff. I probably look at a company a week hmm. um, with them as a potential acquisition. Oh, that makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah, Clearview is a good partner, especially in this space, I think. Yeah, um, they're awesome. So when you're looking at, you know, you got these don't know bills and something I liked about your presentation when we met in Phoenix was, you know, you're a numbers guy. I'm a numbers guy. You know, so you can walk through that a little bit, you know, how long it takes you to get a center up and running, what the costs look like, and then, you know, when you're actually going to have enough money or capital coming off that to do the next one. Well, I'll say we we never have enough money coming in to do the next <laughs> one because you can't, I mean, with the rate we're growing, we're opening 10 clinics right now. And so it's not like we have the, you know, the cash flow to sustain that. So that's why we have, you know, debt financing and everything to, to help. And, and that's another thing an investor will bring, bring to the table. And so, um, so uh, let's see, to open a, a, just a typical OTP takes, um, it, it might take up to a year. I mean, we've opened one in 60 days, but that was like pulling all stops, having good relationships with all the federal agencies, having an emergency situation. Uh, we did one in 60 days. We did one in 90 days. But, um, you know, we just opened one in Milwaukee, right outside of Milwaukee. And it took us over a year to open that. Um, and so that and that's pretty typical, I think, said to six months to a year. Uh, the capital investments, uh, is, it, it usually takes about $250,000 um, to open a clinic. And then uh, at probably about the, I'd say, two-year mark, um, you start to start to break even. And when I say break even, I actually mean recoup all the losses. And so start, you know, the, 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 the clinic could actually start showing um, a return on the investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, I have a lot of different business propositions, especially from newer business owners coming come across my desk, and they want help with this or that. And, you know, they just have very unrealistic projections in place, like six months to break even. Or oh, that's the nature even. of a CEO. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's the, yeah. that's the, yeah, that, that's right. the nature of, of, or the nature of an entrepreneur, I should say, is like, if they seriously thought about the probability of doing something, they would never do anything. And so it's like the probability of failure doesn't really resonate very much with them. And so, yeah, so, so we do have. We always have unrealistic expectations, but we're also always trying to learn from our mistakes and, and get better. Yeah, definitely. All right. So you're primarily an MAT provider. Um, you just kind of want to talk us through the differences a little bit about your model versus, you know, like the residential or the more IOP models out there. Uh, yeah, well, residential, IOP, um, the different levels of care are all all um, substantially different. So we're, for one thing, I would say we're a um, long-term modality of treatment. Um, so... Um, so we, uh, you know, the average length of treatment in an opioid treatment program is like two to three years, you know, with three years being being kind of the ideal target. And so um, that's much different, obviously, than a than a, um, a residential, you know, 28 day residential or an IOP or P PHP program or anything like that. So um, so that's the first big difference. Is it's a long a long term modality of treatment. Um, second, it's a. Um, it's a lot more cost effective. I mean, for, from the payer's perspective, from the patient's perspective, 
Um, obviously, the startup costs and the you know sustainment costs is a lot lower as well, right? Because uh, you know we we I mean the the I think the average cost of methadone treatment, for instance, is about forty seven hundred dollars a year. Like that's the national average, which is inc- I mean you compare that's five days in a residential program, you know, and so um, so yeah, it is a um, it is a it's, a it's a much higher volume kind of model. Obviously we have, you know, we treat hundreds of patients a day. I mean, coming through the clinic a day, um, which is different than uh, you'd see in a, you know, seven, 10, 20 bed residential. So there's a lot of, you know, prescription writing and maintenance within that. Do you have a behavioral health component or how do you incorporate that piece of it? Yeah. I mean, that's a common misconception of, of OTPs in general is, you know, but federal regulations and state regulations, a lot of times mandate that we have a a pretty big behavioral health component. So you can go into one of our larger clinics and you might see, you know, two or three nurses dosing, two doctors prescribing and 15 counselors or therapists providing psychotherapy. And so, um, so the, the bulk of what actually, the bulk of the operation is actually, um, is, and, and I'd say the bulk, bulk of the cost is actually um, the, the, you know, psychosocial component of treatment. And so that doesn't mean all companies um, provide the same, amount or the same quality of um of psychosocial therapy but it is a big part of the of the treatment and you were saying that people generally go through your program for you know two to three years would be ideal do you actually see that in terms of retention mm-hmm. yeah that's i think you you know when you talk about the metrics the outcome measures that a company uses or that the industry uses when when assessing uh, efficacy, I'd say between programs, uh, the primary um, or between modalities of treatment, such as you know uh, methadone versus Vivitrol versus Suboxone, for instance, the primary metric outcome measure that's used is actually retention rate. And so, you know, most um, uh, Surgeon General Murphy's report, the Surgeon General under the Obama administration, he's got like the definitive report, kind of the Bible of of um, of how to how to deal with the opioid epidemic. Uh, it says that anything less than um, than basically one year is not effective, and so so we know anything less uh, any any anything less than one year. So any um, you know uh, retention rate lower than one year is is not good. And so I can tell you our our standard. Um, well, I should say the industry standard for for methadone treatment is about fifty to to eighty percent retention rates at the one year mark. And so that's obviously that's that's a standard an internal standard we hold ourselves to as well, which is our goal is um, 80 percent at one year. And then another um, outcome measure that we hold our clinics to as a standard is 90 percent of our patients when they hit the one year mark, 90 percent of them are consistently testing negative for illicit opiate use. So obviously there's still tension within the field between MET and, and abstinence-based models. Um, how have you guys partnered with, you know, the shorter-term residential detoxes or maybe, you know, an IOP model? Do you tend to have strong partnerships within the communities that you're in? Yes, we do. That's, I think that's, that's kind of one of our values as a company is that we, you know, OTPs do have a tendency to be siloed. And I don't know if it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily their fault. A lot of times it's the treatment community's fault. Um, but it goes both ways. There's this animosity against, you know, between um, MAT providers and abstinence-based providers. And so part of, part of who we really are as, an, as a company is we, we see ourselves as wanting to be part of the entire 
continuum of a patient's life, not just the continuum of care, because we do want to be integrated with any other providers and um, physical health, mental health, behavioral health providers that are touching the patient. But we also want to be integrated into their communities, you know, and so we, so our clinics join like, you know, block watch associations and task forces, and we present at conferences all the time and stuff like that. So we really want to be not siloed. We want to be a part of the, the overall um, continuum. And so a big part of that is, yeah, understanding the value that all of the treatment providers bring to the table. So we refer patients out constantly to higher levels of care. You know, we, we do one modality of treatment for one disorder, but our patients suffer from all sorts of things. So um, I could tell you, you know, we, we, we require 100% of our patients to sign an ROI to coordinate care when they enter treatment with us. So we won't see somebody if they won't let us coordinate care. Um, and we actually do a PDMP check, the pharmacy database check on 100% of patients um, when, they, when, they, when they see the medical provider. And so, yeah, it's important for us to be really part of this continuum. And that's something that I think is kind of lacking in this field. And Arizona is a great example where when we, you know, when I came to the company six years ago, I mean, we residential treatment programs, um, you know, there, there was this, this total tension and animosity between OTPs and residential programs. And we, we have some staff members here who worked like tirelessly with these programs to help educate them and help work with them. And I think in Arizona alone, we probably delivered a 35 different residential treatment programs, like deliver medication. So if a patient's going through, um, you know, 28 day residential, they could stay on their medication. And so we, we believe that, that, you know, detox, residential treatment, all of that is, is got its place in the treatment community. Um, but you have, you really have to include MAT into that. And so that's where we, we need to find that collaboration. Doing it without MAT is where, is where patients are going to fail. Yeah. So I'm curious. We've been talking a lot about um, value-based care recently on the show. Do you have any value-based care contracts since you're doing all these integrations with different providers? Not yet. You know, I mean, we're, it's, it's kind of hard. So as a, like, extreme specialty provider, like, we're extreme specialty provider. We just do one thing. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to to figure that out because, you know, obviously as a specialty provider, we it, it's going to be hard for us to be held accountable on a value-based contract for, you know, somebody's heart disease or diabetes or whatever it is. Like we don't have that much control. And so obviously partnering with, um, with some sort of, you know, health home network or, um, or ACO network or something like that, um, is is something that would have to take place in order for us to be in like a value-based arrangement. I can tell you, I've had lots of discussions with payers on on adding a value-based component to what we do because I think there it'd be, it, it would be easy to, to look at some measures like, you know, um, maybe there's not like HEDIS measures that apply necessarily, but we could still look at, you know, retention rates and, um, and positive versus negative uh, UAs and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think you're right. You'd have to go and come more of like a community of care model with your partnering with, you know, multiple providers from different angles. And yeah, that would be a lot of, a lot to figure out. Yeah, but we're working on it. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations and it's obviously the way of the future. And I'm uh, I'm a huge proponent of, of uh, you know, I, I, I hate that this industry is not, you know, it's not defined by outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Typically, right. um, that's one of the things my biggest frustrations with, with healthcare and behavioral health in general is the customer is typically the payer 
not the patient. Right. And so you can, you can provide the best care, the, sh- the shortest wait times, have the best looking facilities, all of that. And patients could be banging down your door to come to you. But if a payer doesn't want to contract you for their patients, then it doesn't matter how, 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 you know, good the quality of care is. Now, in a perfect environment, the, the payer, uh, payer, you know, goals would align with the patient goals. And so, you know, we try to work as much as we can with payers, and we've seen a lot of payers that are progressing in this um, in this field a ton. So, so would you say there. that the majority of your contracts, and you know, is it tending to be in network? Is it out of network? Is it a mix? It's all in network. I mean, it's uh, we're we're over ninety percent Medicaid funded, and so um, so the so the thing, the weird thing about commercial insurance and Medicare, and I'm sure you know this because you you work with a lot of behavioral health agencies, but Historically, uh, Medicaid, which covers you know the indigent populations, um, th- those are the populations that suffered more from substance use disorders. So Medicaid has a long history of working with behavioral health and mental health providers, whereas um, as uh, now that you see um, you know Medicare and commercial insurance starting to realize the value that behavioral health and mental health um, brings to the table as far as decreasing overall healthcare costs for them, um, you're, you're starting to see that change. And so part of the support act that's going through Congress right now, HR six, um, and it's, it's going to provide Medicare coverage for OTP services. So believe it or not, there was not a provider type, um, OTP provider type under Medicare. Um, and, and that's going to change in January 2020. And so, and then commercial insurance tends to follow suit with what Medicare does. So 2020 is the, the year for OTPs where, where we're going to start being able to contract with, with Medicare and with the commercial providers. Most patients with opioid use disorder actually have commercial insurance. Um, I think it's about 40% of people with opioid use disorder have commercial insurance. About 35% have Medicaid. Yet, like I said, our clinics are 90% Medicaid. Which is which, which tells us that most people with opioid use disorder are not getting OTP services, and then, and then billing out of network. I mean, that's far, that's few and far between. And billing in network with a commercial provider is 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 rare. But we're there's we are working on a, we have a few commercial contracts in place right now, and we're working on more. And those are uh, in network. So why do you think that is that the majority of people are coming from Medicaid? Because like you said, you know, maybe forty percent of people um, with an opioid use disorder. Uh, have commercial insurance, but they tend to use it for these higher levels of care. You know, do you have any well, ideas or yeah, insights into why? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So it's, I mean, part of it is because commercial insurance does not cover for our services, right? That's, that's, I don't know if, if it's not like we have pay, I mean, the, the, the if patients want to pay a cash rate, um, they can, and it's exceptionally cheap um, to, to, I mean, when, when you think about it, I shouldn't say cheap, but there's a lot of, they get a lot of value. I mean, it, they get all the, you know, it's usually a bundled rate for a, um, for a patient that pays cash. Um, and so patients would have to pay out of pocket typically if they have commercial insurance. Um, and so that, that's one reason, obviously. But, you know, I, I don't know. It could also be that, you know, obviously people with commercial insurance ha- um, are, you know, are by definition like in a higher income level. And, and people from a higher income level might not feel as comfortable going to a, a clinic like a, like an opioid treatment program or, you know, that we're commonly referred to as methadone clinics, even though we provide all three uh, forms of medication. But it could be that they don't want to go, you know, be associated with that type of clinic. 
Um, I'm not sure. It's we, we, you know, that's something we're 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 going to be looking at a lot in the next year as we try to um, to get more patients into treatment. But I, if I had to guess, I would say it's just a cultural thing in our culture. Um, stigma is is probably the main component that keeps people from getting the treatment they need. And there's probably a lot more stigma in in the middle and upper class of society than there is in the lower class against uh, against you know get, getting treatment. Sure. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I think it does tend to be um, just kind of a cultural differentiation in the way that different groups look at it. Um, and obviously, affordability is a big piece too. So I'm curious about that though. So you said the commercial insurance doesn't cover MAT treatment. OTP treatment. Yeah. OTP. So so. Yeah. Yeah, OTP. So, so, and I should have led with this. And an opioid treatment program. We're we're opioid treatment programs. What that means is we're the only type of agency in the country that can use methadone for the treatment of addiction. That's why we're often referred to as methadone clinics because um, no other agency can can use methadone for the treatment of addiction. They can for the treatment of pain. But um, a doctor's office, if a doctor wants to start treating addiction or, or opioid use disorder in particular. They can um, they can you know get a waiver to prescribe suboxone, um, but they cannot do methadone. And so we're the only type of agency that can actually do methadone. And so commercial insurance more and more so is starting to to contract with um, with uh, OBOTs or suboxone practices um, than they are OTPs. But the other thing about OTPs, what's unique about us is clinics have to come, patients have to come in every single day to receive their medication, like six, I should say six days, six out of seven days a week when they first start off for the first 90 days. So it's an incredibly controlled environment. And if you think about it from a commercial payers perspective, they don't, they don't really, that's not a commonplace in any other type of the, the physical health world, except for like dialysis, or I mean, there's, there's other examples, but it's pretty rare. And so is a patient going to pay a $35 copay every day? that they come get their treatment six days a week. It'd be cheaper to just not use their insurance, you know? Mm. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, because it's interesting. So we're actually going to have Doug Nemesek. Um, he's the chief medical officer for Cigna on the podcast coming up here. And, you know, I was talking with him about that a little bit. But I just found it odd that because at the end of the day, from a cost perspective, you know, like you mentioned, it's better um, for the payers. And also from an outcomes perspective, you know, when you're at least including the behavioral health piece with the MAT, your outcomes are going to be more positive for patients. So it just seems odd to me that they haven't figured out a way to make that easier um, from the patient's payment standpoint? I, I th- That question right there racks my brain all the time. And I every time I talk to an insurance company, I ask them that same question. I mean, there's research, you know, SAMHSA's got research out there that says, you know, spending money on behavioral health actually leads to lower costs than spending money on physical health for, I mean, total total whole person costs for a patient. So it's like, yes, why insurance companies, obviously, they, they, they have a need to, you know, make, make money. And, and if they want to actually save money and get a larger ROI, why not invest more in behavioral health services for their patients? Because that's going to actually cut down on the physical health costs. And maybe it's just it's, it's, it's the people are finally starting to understand that. And, you're gonna, and it takes a long time to change that industry. I mean, maybe that's what's happening. I'm not sure, or or maybe there's something I don't understand out there that's going on. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, because when you talk to the payers, they'll tell you that they actually don't really care about the the behavioral health costs that much because they're still minimal compared to physical health. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
So like why, why all the pushback, right? It, but, it could just be like operationalizing those changes. I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. Um, so kind of going back to some of the business pieces there, you know, with the behavioral health piece, so is that also covered under the Medicaid reimbursement or is that separate? How does that come out, you know, versus the, the prescription versus the um, behavioral health counseling? Well, I mean, it just depends if you have a bundled contract um, or block funding or something like that, then it's, uh, you know, it's, it covers everything um, in a fee for service environment, which kind of there's this weird move like this backwards move in the fee for service right now in a lot of states um, where um, under a fee for service, or at least in our space where with fee for service, you know, yeah, you, if you, if you do more counseling, you bill more counseling. So I haven't really seen restrictions um, uh, on, on like additional, um, additional payments for additional counseling. I, I haven't seen that, but I'm sure it exists in a lot of states that I don't know about. I guess why I ask is because what I've seen with some of the MAT clinics, like you mentioned before, some of them do not pro provide the behavioral health piece, right? They will outsource it. Or I've even seen clinics that just, you know, require that they go to an AA meeting and then provide that as proof of their behavioral health component. So you know, why, oh, why yeah. is it divide there? You know, why aren't they providing the services in house? Okay. So I think, yeah. So that's a little different of a topic because opioid treatment programs, again, quote unquote, methadone clinics, have to provide behavioral health services. So you're not going to see, it's gonna, it's rare that you can see what you just described. The OBOT model, which is the Suboxone model, um, which is, which you see a lot, you, you see that you, that might be more prevalent right now. I mean, there's, there's a lot of Suboxone pro providers out there. Uh, OBOT models are typically the ones that don't provide the behavioral health services. And I mean, the reason for that is because there, there's a couple of reasons. One, there is a lot of research out there that says adding a behavioral health component to a patient's uh, to a patient's treatment plan that's receiving Suboxone actually shows no improvements whatsoever. Like they've compared counseling plus Suboxone to just Suboxone and shown the same exact outcomes. So the behavioral health component in those studies didn't actually add any value. Now I don't personally agree with that. I I would question the the um, modality or the quality of the behavioral health that was actually provided. I think the behavioral health component is exceptionally important um, to eventually get people off of, uh, off of MAT. Um, but, but a lot of, I mean, if you think about a, do a doctor's office, like a physician, right. That's, that's just a family practice physician that wants to start treating addiction, goes through an eight hour course to now prescribe Suboxone. Um, and th and they can now treat any of their patients that that they identify as having an opioid use disorder. Adding a behavioral health component to that is it's it's very different to their existing business model. I mean that's a whole different realm for a, a doctor doing. I mean they don't do behavioral health typically, and so so I think it's it's a lot of doctors probably feel that's outside of the scope of what they do, and so yeah they'll outsource it or um, or or they, and they probably in those situations they probably have trouble billing behavioral health, uh, billing for behavioral health services. I've heard that a lot, um, but that's very different than opioid treatment programs. We are behavioral health. That's what we focus on. That makes sense. You know, it's interesting. I've seen those studies too with the Suboxone, but um, I agree with you. I think it's about the fact that they're not tracking after the taper or after they finish the program, you know, because that's when the behavioral health component is extremely necessary. Well, I mean, yeah. We know that that MAT is the most effective modality of treatment by far. I mean, it over it decreases overdose death rates by seventy five percent. Like, 
If you want to keep people alive in the midst of this epidemic, MAT is absolutely 100% the answer. I shouldn't say 100%. I'll say 92% because about 8% of people don't don't need MAT. And if you look at um, the, the, out, the long-term outcome data for MAT, okay, what we've seen in, in very long-term studies is that about 25% of people um, will go through an MAT program and never relapse again. 25%. 75% will relapse for the rest of their lives. Of that 75%, so 25% will actually get off MAT and never relapse. 25% will stay on MAT for the rest of their lives. And 50% will be in and out of MAT for the rest of their lives, which means 75% are, you know, are either in treatment or or relapsing for the rest of their lives. And that's of, that's of those that survive, that 50% of people with an opioid use disorder die from their disorder. Three out of 10 of them are dead at the, at the um, 10 year mark. So it's an incredibly deadly disease. So if you say 75% of people basically need MAT for the rest of their lives, 75%, um, my question is, if you were to, if you were to deal with the underlying root cause of their addiction, which could be trauma, which could be ADHD, which could be, you know, all sorts of things. If you deal with the underlying root cause of their addiction, then then there's a potential that that for at least 50% of them, you could get them off of MAT. But if you look at the infrastructure in our country, we don't have we don't have enough trauma therapists to treat the trauma in our country. We don't have enough, um, you know, psychologists or, or, or any psychotherapist for that matter to treat you know, the underlying root causes of these addictions. We just don't. I, I'm, I'm convinced that our infrastructure in the country is just totally, totally inadequate to deal with the drug epidemic overall, not the opioid epidemic, but the drug epidemic. And so, um, so MAT is, is probably the next best thing because we absolutely know it keeps people alive. And first and foremost, that's what, that's the number one priority. It's a really interesting perspective, and I would say I agree with you. And, you know, on top of just this shortage of qualified staff and counselors is also, you know, how well are the counselors that we have in place being able to provide treatment? You know, we've... That's, we've... that's what I mean. When I, say, when I say qualified counselors, I mean, if, you, if you've ever tried to find a, a good trauma therapist, for instance, it's incredibly difficult. That, that one that actually, you know, it's not about their degree or their experience. You can give me five PhDs in in psychology and nobody's ever going to talk to me about their problems because I'm not like inherent. I don't have that gift to, you know, to, to, to treat people in that capacity. But um, so, so finding people that are actually good at providing trauma therapy or psychotherapy or whatever is incredibly difficult. That's why I really think that the infrastructure in, in our country cannot support um, this drug epidemic, which is getting worse and worse. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they've done those studies, right? Your standard 80-20 rule where 20% of counselors and therapists tend to be effective at the, the treatment that they're providing. So, um, yep. yeah, just, just one of those things that's really hard to kind of figure out, you know, what do we do? It's probably issues with university and training programs and a million other things that problem that I'm not going to solve. <laughs> it, it, it's also, the, it's also the, the root causes that are causing people to use in the first place. Right. Which is, that's incredibly difficult. I mean, you look at trauma as a root cause, um, you know, d- divorce is, is, a, is one of the aces, you know, it's like, yeah. it's, I mean, you, you have it, it, drug, parents who use drugs is another 
one of the aces. And so, um, so when you look at the, this, this continuation of the trauma throughout our country, like it's getting worse and worse, ADHD, that's a, that's a dominant, that's a dominant trait, which means, and we're the melting pot of the world, which means in a hundred years, the whole country is going to have ADHD. And that means people have a, a dopamine deficiency, which makes them, you know, more inclined to seek out um, dopamine stimulation, which means, I mean, things are just, it's, it's snowballing. And so we, we, that's why it's so hard to even talk about this issue because there's, there's a lot that needs to be done. And, and a lot of people out there spreading misinformation or, or vested, you know, interests or whatever it is that are, that are actually um, detracting us from solving the problem. Right. And we try to simplify it so much. I mean, we say something like trauma, you know, it's just one word, but really it's this complex array of, you know, a million different things. And, you know, it's very subjective too. You know, it's really about up to the patient of what. Or you'll hear somebody say, we need to deal with trauma. That's what, that's what we need to do is we need to deal with trauma and that can solve the opioid epidemic. I'm a huge believer (laughs) that we need to deal with trauma, but that's incredibly myopic to think that that is going to solve the opioid epidemic, you know, and people do get distracted based on their passions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, okay. So kind of jumping back a little bit to some of the questions of around, you know, the number of people coming through, you know, you've seen a lot, you said, you know, up to a hundred a day in a center. Oh no, no, no. We, 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 we have, we have one center that sees a thousand a day. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying a minimum a hundred a day. So, you know, people are staying with you for a significant period of time. Would you say that, you know, if you're looking over a month time frame, you know, do you have a thousand people coming through in that given month or that's even above that in terms of unique? Oh, it's above that. Okay. It's typically about 40 to 50% are coming in daily. So if you have a clinic of 2000 people, you'll have, you know, 800, a thousand coming in daily. And then the other, you know, a thousand, 1200 are coming in um, throughout the month. And some patients come in only once a month. How large do you think a clinic can be to be effective? You know, is there, do you guys have a cap on those before you open another one? Well, that's a good question because it's something, I mean, our clinics are in the midst of, of the epidemic. Our clinics are, are bursting at the seams. And so we're, that's one of the reasons we're constantly opening new clinics is to try to offload patients. You know, it's, I mean, if you get, if you have a clinic that's at capacity, Right. Let's say it's at, it's at capacity. Um, what whatever you define capacity as, that could be some internal definition based on counselor caseloads or whatever. But if you have a clinic that's at capacity and you have a patient who come in, going through withdrawal, saying, "I finally made the decision that I want to get sober, like right here and now," it's incredibly hard to say, "Sorry, we're at capacity." Like that's almost a death sentence. And if, and then of the entire if the entire system's at capacity, what do you do? So we do find ourselves uh, bursting at the seams a lot of times um, because it's very, very hard to say no to patients. And so, you know, there, there's now there's a lot you could do operationally to increase capacity. If your average wait time for a patient is one hour, then obviously you're going to have a very full lobby. But if you could cut that down to an average wait time of two minutes, then you're going to have a much, you know, smaller lobby. Same with same with caseloads for counselors. If you have a if you have one uh, counselor doing, um, you know, intakes, which might take two hours versus um, other counselors doing, um, you know, follow up appointments, which might take 30 minutes, then you can you can obviously, you know, do uh, one one counselor might have a caseload of 10 and another counselor might have a caseload of 150. And so and then we use we use a lot of telemedicine as well and, and telecounseling across our clinics so that um, so that we could kind of 
you know, increase capacity utilization in the entire system so that nobody's ever sitting there not doing anything when you have another clinic totally overwhelmed. So we're always trying to spread out the, um, the capacity utilization. And so there's a lot you can do, but, um, but frankly, there needs to be more clinics. I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, SAMHSA and ATOD have been saying for, for years that we need to dramatically increase the amount of opioid treatment programs in the country um, to deal with the epidemic. And they're not, I mean, the, you know, treatment, the growth of the treatment industry has not come close to paralleling the growth of the, um, of the epidemic. So what, what prevents you? So, I mean, you're already opening 10 clinics this year, you know, that's a lot, obviously, and that's a lot to handle, but what do you think prevents you from scaling faster than you are? Community resistance. That's the number one I mean, just like the number one reason people don't enter treatment is because of stigma, the number one reason treatment programs can't open is because of stigma. You have communities that say, we don't want this in our neighborhood. I mean, same with, I mean, it's the entire treatment community. It's not just us. It's, you know, sober living homes or whatever it is. It's, uh, it's the, the entire industry is, uh, is struggling with expanding access to care because you have you have a lot of communities saying we don't want drug treatment in our communities. You have elected officials saying we don't want drug treatment communities centers in our communities because then it pisses off our, our constituents. Um, and so it's that I'd say that's the number one um, barrier to people receiving access. And then what about population density wise? You know, what's the smallest population center that you guys have opened up in? Uh, we just opened in a town of 10,000 people, Safford, Arizona. It's a historically, we would say you wouldn't go into a city with less than 100,000 people. Um, we have actually been opening these these like satellite clinics. They're called medication units, um, which are like very slim down um, uh, centers. And um, and a typical treatment center um, needs about 120 patients to break even. Okay. Um, and, and so to break even, you typically need like a probably county population of 100,000. Um, but I could tell you, we have a clinic in Kalispell, Montana, city population of 20,000. Um, and we have about 400 patients in, in the clinic. And it's only a county population of 100,000. So it's, it's really hard to understand uh, what the minimum city size is. I think right now you could probably throw a dart on the map and and uh, open a clinic and and succeed if you can get the clinic open. Wow, wow. Well, I guess, you know, probably like you said, socioeconomics do, does have a lot to do with it, especially for your model. So, you know, if you're opening an area that's more economically distressed, you, you're probably gonna have a higher percentage of that population coming into the center. It could be, uh, it could be, I'm not exactly sure. Um, so question on marketing, cause that's what we do. And so I'm always interested in what yeah. you guys have seen. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this at the conference, you know, in terms of where people were going to go, was it quality? Was it proximity? Um, so what do you guys do from a marketing perspective? Cause obviously, you know, you don't have the cost per admission ceilings that these larger residential facilities have. You're looking at much lower margins, you know, so what makes sense for you guys? Right. Well, and, and the other thing is like, we're very, um, we're really local. Like our clinics only pull from the surrounding area. So, you know, a residential treatment program that gets people from all over the country, for instance, marketing obviously makes, I mean, advertising makes a lot of sense to them, you know? And so for, from an advertising perspective, we don't do, we, we, we don't really do any advertising. I mean, we, um, you know, our, our view on advertising is, is first of all, 
word of mouth matters more than anything. I mean, this is a, the, 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 the community of, of people actively using is a pretty tight knit community. And so word gets around, you know, who the, who the good treatment providers are, who the bad treatment providers, some people prefer bad treatment providers and we prefer not to treat those people. So that kind of works out well, but, um, but, but word gets around. And so to us, like operational excellence just internally is much more important than advertising like running a good program with good counselors, hiring staff that actually care about patients and don't just see them as a number. Like that's more important to us than any advertising we can be doing. And they'll, they'll be out there advertising on our behalf. Um, and then we, we, we present at conferences. We, we, um, we get a lot of news coverage for, um, for, for what we do. You know, we're a good provider. We collaborate a lot. And so, um, you know, that, that takes care of a lot of the advertising on our end. I'd say that the, the, the biggest value, and this is something we haven't done a great job of, the biggest value of advertising for us is when you open a new clinic. So the city, so nobody knows you're there. The, 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 you know, ramp up runway for patients entering the clinic, it could be a very long, slow, steady growth until you get to a stable um, clinic, which is weird it, because you know there's people there that need treatment and why it's taking them so long to get into treatment is, is hard to understand. But if we could do a better job of advertising a new clinic, um, that would probably have a, a pretty good uh, return on the investment in, in advertising dollars. It's interesting. Hmm. Have you seen when you have the PR that comes out from opening a new center or let's say you've got some PR that comes out, you know, after the center has been open for a bit, do you see an influx in patients at that point? Yep. Okay. Definitely. We have this, I mean, we have the first, you know, the first 24 seven clinic in the country we opened here in Phoenix and, and we intake, um, we intake, we've intake over 5,400 patients in the first 18 months. Wow. 5,400 patients. I mean, that's insane. The average, the average clinic in the country might be 250 to 500 patients. Um, we intake 5,400. I mean, it's, it's like mind boggling that growth. I mean, it's just insane. We still do about 250 to 300 new intakes every month, just nonstop. And I could tell you when we went 24 seven, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, we, we actually thought, maybe nothing would happen. And it was, this was funded under some of the STR grant funds. And we thought, you know, we might just have people twiddling their thumbs all night. I mean, we had a doctor on staff all night, peer support, counselors, you know, nurse, everything, off-duty police officer. Um, but the thing just absolutely uh, exploded. And so um, I could tell you, we, because we didn't know what was going to happen, we did zero advertising. We didn't even tell like the police department or the fire department or anybody else, because we didn't want to, we didn't want to get too many intakes. We didn't want to get overrun. The only thing that was covered was the news. The news heard about it and, you know, NPR and local news stations and everybody came out. Um, AT Forum did a study on it, uh, a, a story on it. Uh, and there was, uh, there was a lot of publicity just because it was the first in the country. And that's the only advertising that actually took place. And we got like overrun with patients. Wow. Well, that's really interesting because I, I'm always looking at, you know, where patients are finding people from. Obviously, word of mouth is a big piece of that. Do you have um, community representation, whether it's uh, designated like business development rep or maybe your center managers are um, involved in the yep. community? Is that happening? Yep. It's okay. very, very important to us. We have a lot of times they'll be peers, so people in recovery themselves. Um, and 
And yeah, it's, it's very important for us either, you know, to have a designated person at a clinic. And sometimes it's a manager, sometimes it's a counselor that just has a passion for that. Sometimes it's a doctor, sometimes it's a peer, but it, it is very important that we attend. If there's local, you know, mayor or governor's task forces or whatever, it's important for us to be there to be seen as wanting to collaborate. Okay. And then do you work with like drug courts and local judicial systems yep. at all? Okay. All of them. We work with drug courts, jails, prisons, fire department, hospitals, police departments. Yep. That makes a lot and of sense. And that's hard. I mean, I can, I can tell you that's, I've had lots of small companies come up and say, Hey, how do we get more involved in our jail or our prison? And it's like, I can tell you it's, it's really hard for a small agency to do that because you do a lot of pro bono work right. um, without any expectation of a return on investment. You know, I mean, we've we've hired entire positions where it's like, look, you're just going out to help people help navigate our patients through the judicial system. And there's we're not expecting any ROI on that. And so um, that we can do that because we're a bigger agency. Um, But small agencies, when 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 they come and talk to me and say, what can we do to grow census? I'm like, that's probably not the best use of your money because it's it's, you know, you're going to you're going to take a big loss. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, what I've seen with uh, the Suboxone-based Zobets is that they tend to be very SEO-focused for some reason. It seems to be a lot of people find them online, but they also tend not to have the budgets to get a PR spend out there, you know, um, which isn't always easier to do. So very interesting. Do you guys do anything on, on that end? Do you end up doing any kind of engine search engine optimization when you first come into a location? Well, no, because, to, I mean, you know, to, in my opinion, and I'm sure you could correct me if I'm wrong, because you know much more about this than I do. But um, I think SEO really starts with your website. And so how, you know, how your website, the content of your website is going to is going to be the biggest contributor to SEO. And so um, we, you know, we try to stay active, um, updating our website and and taking into account all the SEO implications of of all the content. Um, But you know, I mean, the other thing is, is Google reviews, I mean, are going to help with SEO a lot. Yes. And so we, we, we try very hard to get people to, um, to leave Google reviews, good or bad. We, you know, we, we've had some clinics and I don't know how they do it, but we've, we've, you know, had some clinics that will print out, you know, flyers and really encourage people to go leave a Google review. If you go on our website right now, you could, you, and you go to the landing page for the location, you could click directly to be taken to a um, Google review link so you could leave a review. A review. And so um, that that's, I think that's probably made a big difference with SEO. Yeah, probably. What I've seen with some of the clinics is, um, because it's Google's very local these days, right? And people are doing localized searches. And so often there's just not a lot of clinics in the area, right? I mean, when you look at your reses and your detoxes and stuff like that, they tend to be out in some different area of the city or whatever. So if someone's searching within, especially a, a lower income demographic or even more middle class, you guys will pop up right away because you're only you're the only location in the area. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what do you think about this trend? You know, obviously you guys are focused on methadone and you're dealing with the opioid crisis, you know, but we're seeing things shift to meth and cocaine. Do you have an opinion or, or do you see anything coming down the line in terms of MAT capabilities for some of these other drugs? Yeah, yeah. There's a uh, there's a medication MAT um, modality right now being tested in uh, Australia for um, methamphetamine um, addiction. So yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Eh? Well, we talked kind of covered the inpatient standard outpatient forms of care already. So let me yeah, and let me let me address let me actually just touch upon that topic a little bit more because I I actually for some reason I get asked this a lot. I'm like you know people ask all the time. Your your modality is so focused on 
treating opioid use disorder? Are you, how, how are you going to pivot when the epidemic changes? Because we know we're in the midst of a drug epidemic, not an opioid epidemic. I mean, this is just this is just one little segment of the overall drug epidemic, and it's constantly changing. But there's been a lot of research that's been coming out recently, you know, from um, from from MassGen in Boston and and um, and McKinsey uh, did some analysis on some on, on on the on the industry, and you've seen a bunch of data out there. And all of the research is saying that the, the opioid epidemic in particular is going to get worse and worse. It's not getting better based on, you know, the, the most recent study I saw said that, you know, by 2025, you're going to see 147 percent increase in overdose death rates based on the uh, current um, interventions that we've seen over the last couple of years. So everything we've seen, all the billions of dollars that have been thrown at this problem from the federal government, from states and everything else, um, based on the current interventions, the opioid epidemic is going to increase um, dramatically in the future. And when you look at the amount of people right now that have opioid use disorder, we've heard this 2.4 million people have opioid use disorder. That's typically the, the, the number that's been used. Um, I think the McKinsey analysis uh, looked at Massachusetts Medicaid claims data, and they, they said that they think about 4.6% of the population um, has an opioid use disorder. Uh, Kaiser Kaiser Health actually um, did a study where they said one in twenty, one in twenty Americans um, are on long-term um, uh, opioid treatment for chronic pain. And so when you look at all the people that might have an opioid use disorder, but it just has never been diagnosed because they've never been taken off. I mean, you can't. It's hard to diagnose somebody until they show like withdrawal symptoms or start showing the unhealthy relationship with their medication. Um, if they've been on chronic pain medication for five or ten years or whatever, you, you can't you can't diagnose them. You can't actually say they have a diagnosis. But when you look at the amount of people that are on um, high you know doses of opioids for a long period of time, um, there's a good chance there's a this. I mean, we are just seeing the surface of the of the opioid um, epidemic that actually exists right now. And so that's another reason why it's going to get worse in the future because we, a lot, as you start to see, we're already seeing it as the as the federal and state governments start cracking down on pain management clinics um, and cutting back on um, OPR prescriptions, people um, people are getting cut off. They're not being referred to the right treatment, and they get you know they turn to heroin on the street because it's much cheaper. Um, and you're just going to see people flooding into treatment, and that's exactly what we're seeing in every one of our clinics right now. I think people also forget that I mean OTPs have been around for decades, right? You know, before the yep. opioid epidemic ever started, so it's been a, a long time. And we should probably touch on that. You know, so um, we talked about it a little bit, but not specifically. You know, methadone clinics in particular have had a bad reputation in the space, and sometimes for good reason in the past. So, do you want to talk a little bit about you know where that stigma came from, and then how you guys differentiate yourselves from you know some of those more negative, I'd almost say like jail style um, clinics of the past. Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there, but it's, it's methadone clinics in general. Um, I would say, you know, they do, I mean, methadone in methadone, aside from the clinic, methadone has a bad reputation, right? And part of that's from the methadone clinics. Part of that is because, you know, people say we're, we're replacing one drug for another, which you would never say about, you know, um, uh, about, you know, replacing insulin for uh, internal, a person's internal supply of insulin for a diabetic. And so it's, so the root, the root cause of the stigma against methadone 
the root cause is actually really the stigma against um, addiction, right? Because if you, if, you, if you truly think of addiction as a disease and you treat it like any other disease, then, then you wouldn't say things like you're replacing one drug for another. You're only saying that because of um, the fact that we're treating addiction, if that makes sense. So I think the stigma against addiction um, is the root cause behind the stigma against um, uh, MAT in general. And then the stigma against, um, against OTPs, there's a good chance is tied to the, the community perspectives of OTPs. I mean, OTPs are different than the residential treatment program in the sense that you, you do not have hundreds of cars coming through a parking lot of a residential treatment program. You don't have lines of people waiting outside. Um, you don't have that visibility a lot of times, even though, you know, all modalities of treatment get um, community pushback. You see it much more in the OTP realm. Um, and I think it is because of the, you know, the way that clinics are set up. And then, and then I'll tell you, as an agency, being responsive to community concerns is very, very difficult. And I don't think most companies care that much about it. A lot of companies just say, you know what, we're, our patients are protected under the ADA. If the city has a problem with us, we'll just sue them. Um, that's, that's much easier than saying we are going to work tirelessly with this community to try to, try to partner with them and try to get their buy-in. Like, that's incredibly difficult. So it's like there's a lot – I know I'm saying a lot right now. There's a lot of variables involved that contribute to the stigma – and I'm sure there's a lot of OTPs out there that have just thrown up their hands and said, you know what, forget it. We're sick of dealing with these angry communities. We're just going to do what we do. We're sick of dealing with these, you know, these payers or whatever. We're just going to keep doing what we do. And, um, and they kind of just give up on, on, on trying to be as collaborative. And then you have the whole treatment industry in opposition to them. And that's hard to deal with too, you know? And so, I'm not trying to pass blame because there's probably also a lot of just bad providers out there that are just in it for the profit. And just like in any other, any other, but you see that, I'm sure you see that in every aspect of healthcare, but OTPs do have a worse, um, you know, a worse image than, than other types of modalities of treatment. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, we can be, and you know, I'm guilty of this as well as being very critical of the uh, treatment space sometimes. Um, but even when you look at like health, uh, healthcare in general and hospitals, when they first introduced Medicaid, you know, hospitals ran rampant and just charged exorbitant fees to oh, the totally. government. Mm -hmm. And that's why they brought in, you know, your DTPs and everything or DCPs is because they had to scale back those costs because hospitals were just billing left and right for everything. Yeah. Another, and you know, another problem I think is that compliance, you know, I brought in a chief operating officer for the company out of a manufacturing environment, you know, which is very, very different because, and, and it's because it's I realized that in the behavioral health space, it doesn't seem like compliance is on par with what you see in like a manufacturing environment, you know, and, and so um, and, and you're seeing it more in healthcare. But I also think that the compliance, um, you know, the compliance aspect of behavioral health has not kept up as well as it should have. Um, it, that's, you know, that, that could be another problem. And OTP services, OTP services are, are also risky. I mean, patients die in treatment. I think when a patient enters treatment for on methadone treatment, they're like 10 times more likely to overdose within the first two weeks um, because um, methadone is an opioid. It's, if you don't know how to prescribe it, it it's very dangerous. And, and you don't see people die as much in the residential treatment programs. You see them die after, after treatment, right, and, and in very, very high rates. 
And so, um, so a lot of times the residential programs, the finger's not being pointed at them when somebody dies a month after getting released, right? But it, but if it happens while in treatment, which is you know we're doing long term modality of treatment, we're dealing with very very high risk patients. Um, you're going to have, uh, by its very nature, you're going to have a lot more risk involved. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's a very high risk in this field across the board. You know, and how do you deal with that from a company end? Yeah, I mean, do you just really literally have to set aside, you know, monies for legal suits and liabilities? Or, you know, what do you do to kind of incorporate that in? Because it is going to happen. Well, we have professional liability insurance, but it's... um. To me, it, 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 I don't know. I talk a lot about this with my team. I think a lot of it has to do with, with the culture that you create at your company. Um, I'm, I'd say for as far as CEOs go, I'm, a, I'm probably a lot more um, compliance-oriented and, and, uh, than, than most CEOs. A lot, of, a lot of CEOs are like, yeah, let's do this, let's do that, let's do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm often the one that's like, let's pump the brakes, let's dive into the regulation, let's not do anything um, that could get us into any, like the potential to get us into any trouble. And so um, I think it is, I mean, and that, that trickles down. I mean, we're now an organization of 500 employees, you know, my perspective on this does trickle down and the leadership team's um, perspective on this in general does create this culture. And so do you, are you going to have a compliance minded culture or are you going to have a like let's just get it done operations type compliance culture? Because we are very much an agency that's like we are going to get it done. We're going to open the first twenty four seven clinic in the country. We're going to open ten clinics at one time. All that stuff. Like we're we're very fast paced and aggressive, and 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 we like to make things happen. But um, but you have to balance that with with you know with with the the risk assessment, and so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very compliance minded. The other thing you'll see is a lot of OTPs out there that don't have strong compliance departments are typically the ones that don't take Medicaid, right? Because Medicaid adds a whole nother layer of audits and compliance requirements. And so um, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here, but um, typically if a clinic's taking Medicaid, they're going to have a lot more compliance oversight. So they're, they're probably going to be a, a better quality program. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and you, again, you mentioned you're opening up these 10 centers. You know, you're probably taking on a significant amount of debt to do that. You know, from a business standpoint, do you look or do you concern yourself with like rising interest rates? And, you know, does that kind of go into a factor play in terms of how much leverage you're taking on and things like that? No, I wouldn't say that goes into like our day to day decision making. Um, if 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 there's like a, a debt bubble that's about to burst, then the whole entire private equity market is going to be hit very hard. Um, the, I mean, the, the, the private equity market is really predicated on, you know, debt financing. And so that would affect all, that would affect the entire market. So I try not to spend too much time <laughs> thinking about what if the whole market collapses. Like I, sure. I tend to think more about, you know, day-to-day risks and, and, and shorter term or, or long-term, you know, strategic goals for the company. So, Got it. um, yeah, you could go, you could go both ways. Debt overhang on a company um, from a from a behavioral finance perspective is um, sometimes a good thing. It helps discipline companies. Um, sometimes companies don't feel comfortable. I mean, seeing the interest charges that we pay every month is uh, disconcerting. You don't want to spend money on interest if you don't have to, but but it does make sense in the in the private equity field. Yeah, especially if you're feeling the growth. Um, so, what are the key metrics are you looking at from like a center perspective or across the business? You know, what are the top five things that you look at? You know, daily or weekly? 
Yeah, we look at um, retention rates. We look at um, we look at positive versus negative UAs. I'd say when I say retention rates, I could back up. We look at ninety day retention rates because if a patient um, if a patient stays for ninety days, they're more inclined to stay for one year. And if a patient stays for one year, they're more inclined to get better. So ninety day retention rates and one year retention rates. Um, we look at UA results. We look at um, we we do a lot. We look at um, at at um, quantity of counseling, even if it's it doesn't we don't we don't have different metrics for different payers or anything like that. It's not about billing as much as we can on a fee for service side. Uh, it's 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 we we require a patient sees a counselor once every you know I think it's thirty days internally at the minimum, and so we actually have a list of patients that are that are approaching that thirty day mark. And managers talk with the counselor and say, hey, you need to counsel the patient the next time they come in because they haven't seen a counselor in uh, 26 days or whatever it is. And so um, we, uh, you know, and I can tell you when I first came to the company and we started looking at those metrics, we found patients that hadn't seen a counselor in like two years or something. Mm, wow. And um, which, which is very, very problematic. And I'm sure a lot of companies have that same problem. They just if you're not looking at the data, if we, they weren't a, it wasn't a bad company trying to do bad things it was just like if you don't look at the data you don't know what you're doing wrong right and so we we actually one of the first things i, I did when i came to the company was was worked on getting a data warehouse built internally so we can collate data from multiple sources and run reports um that's been a headache for the last five years trying to get it you know get it accurate and everything and working out all kinks but um but so we look at, you know, how often a patient's seeing a counselor, how often a patient's being um, seen by a medical provider. We look at wait times. Um, you know, our mission, vision, and values is really bent on patients getting their lives back together. That means getting all this is social determinants of health, you know, getting getting reunited with their families, getting um, employed, getting, um, you know, decreased, um, you know, uh, jail recidivism, whatever it is. So we look at those those outcome measures. Um, and so, um, so, uh, you know, that's a lot of times that's, that's driving, uh, driving what we do, but I was saying part of, part of our mission and vision values is to actually deal with those, um, with, with kind of the consequences of, of their drug use. And so, um, if somebody has to wait, let's say, you know, an hour a day in a clinic to get a dose, you can't expect them to go be with their family or to get a job or whatever. And so, um, so it's important to us to keep our wait times down in our clinic, for instance, and we're constantly looking at our wait times. And if we, if we change out, you know, internet service providers or something, does that, what does that do to our wait times and all, all that stuff? So, so we're trying to balance a lot. I'll tell you the one thing we don't talk a lot about is financials. We do not talk about financials, um, with our clinics very often, um, because a lot of companies, I mean, obviously financials are important. We all understand that, you know, I, I as a as a true believer in, in free market capitalism, I believe that profit is a consequence of providing the best care and um, and 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 meeting the patient's needs. It's a consequence, but it can't be a focus. And a lot of companies do get into that trap where all they talk about is census growth and 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 finances. And I don't think these are bad companies that are trying to just profit off of off of a crisis, I think it, it just, it evolves into that slowly as they bring in consultants and build scorecards and do all that stuff. They inadvertently end up talking about nothing but profit. And I think that's pretty problematic. So we're very, um, we're, we're very reticent to talk very much about profitability. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about things like, you know, um, uh, you know, just uh, ratios and stuff like that. 
And how are you tracking those outcomes? Um, so you mentioned there's social determinants of health in there, you know, family reunions, um, maybe finding a primary care provider, jobs. You know, do you have someone at the centers that's doing that outreach? Is that your case management team? No, I, I very much wish uh, we were doing a better job of that, honestly, um, because tracking uh, tracking social determinant outcomes is very, very hard because, like, either you have to make a huge change operationally, internally, which is, like, either start during doing survey data, um, start asking counselors or physicians or whatever to ask a patient every time they come in the status of a couple social determinant um, uh, variables. Um, it, it's really hard to do. Most of the data that we have is, comes from external. Like, so we have a lot of grant, pro, we do a lot of grant programs. Um, and so um, a lot of times these grant programs will have like third parties collecting data on us on our patients and we use, and that's, and that's much better data anyways, because we could share that publicly and say, look at our outcome data. And it's incredible. I mean, our, the data we have is just absolutely mind blowing. And it's, and, and people can't say you manipulated that data because it's collected by a third party um, typically from through like a grant funded project. So we'll use a lot of that data, but, but we're trying to figure out, I mean, we're constantly trying to figure out how do we do a better job of capturing social determinant data um, and so we, I'll tell you, we do not have that figured out right now. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, we've, call, we've covered quite a broad range of subjects here. Are there any final thoughts that you want to add to the discussion? No, thanks for having me on. This is great. I love talking about it and I could talk about it forever. So if you want to keep talking, just let me know. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate it. I mean, it's fantastic information. And I do want to have more um, MAT providers on the show because we've talked about it a little bit here or there, but I think there it's a necessary component. And I wish there was stronger integration um, across the continuum of care and the models. So if someone wants to reach out to you um, or your company, what's the best way to contact you guys? Sure. Um, you could, I mean, uh, my email address is nick.stavros, uh, S-T-A-V-R-O-S, nick.stavros at cmsgiveshope.com. And, um, and there's a 1-800 number on our website. They could call uh, and get routed to our corporate office uh, if needed, or they can shoot me an email. Perfect. Well, as always, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. You can always find this podcast anywhere where podcasts are found for download or streaming while you're on the way to work, while you're working out, um, whatever makes sense for you. So we appreciate everyone joining in. And Nick, we appreciate you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care, Nick. Thanks so much. Have a good one.